Who lives? Who dies? Who tells your story? Runs that poignant lyric from the American hit musical Hamilton. Who tells your story? Well, storytelling has been at the heart of this podcast for many of the 400 weeks and counting that we've shared together, but it didn't occur to me until just a few years ago to start a new episodic series that will feature some of your favorite Motley Fool personalities telling their story. Because regardless of who lives, who dies, and the truth is we all do, the unanswered question is, who tells your story? And I thought, well, why not have them do so? Why not have you do so this week? Jeff Fisher, Kirsten Guerra, where'd you come from? If you had to tell your story in just 10 sentences, how would you tell it? And what does the stock graph of your life look like? And what were the three key moments that made you into the investor you are today? Telling Their Stories, Volume 5, kicks off only on this week's Rule Breaker Investing. It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder, David Gardner. Well, I'm really delighted shortly to be joined this week by longtime Fool Jeff Fisher and by Kirsten Guerra after him. Earlier this week, I dropped my invites to Jeff and Kirsten, asking them to reflect on three questions. How would you tell your life story if you only had 10 sentences? And what does the stock graph of your life look like? And what are the three key moments making you today the investor that you are? So from Jeff Fisher, who's been with The Motley Fool almost from the beginning, having worn so many different jester caps over his 26 years with us, and from Kirsten Guerra, who transitioned from her job working oil fields as a geophysicist to come to a new career at The Fool, where she's now an investment analyst. You're going to hear from both of them first how they would summarize their lives up to this point in just 10 sentences should be interesting. But having personally once been asked in a small group myself as kind of a get-to-know-you exercise to express my life in terms of a stock graph, well, that's what we'll do next with them. And dear listener, whoever you are, wherever you are, consider doing that yourself sometime. Think through what have been your highs and lows. It's a fun way to explain yourself, at least to fellow investors who would get it the stock graph of your life. And then finally, that third building block, which we've used from the beginning, this is the fifth in this episodic series, that third building block is how Jeff, how Kirsten became an investor. What were their three key moments? And again, for you by extension, my dear fellow fool, ask yourself, what are the three key moments that have made you the investor you are today? I enjoy featuring others on this series, but the closest analog I've done thus far on this podcast myself, just looking back to my own history, was on September 21st, 2016. The title of that podcast, now almost seven years ago, if you're interested in how I developed as an investor, is Portrait of the Investor as a Young Man. Again, it was September 21, 2016. If you want to Google it, find it. I was, of course, alluding to a James Joyce title, but Unlike some of Joyce's works of gargantuan length, my 2016 portrait was just a, I'd say, a very joggable 32 minutes long where I talk about some of the key building blocks that helped develop me as a teenager and a young adult as an investor. But enough about me. I'm much more excited now to welcome back Jeff Fisher to Rule Breaker Investing. Jeff, great to be with you again. 
David, great to be here as well. Thank you. Jeff, what are you doing today at The Motley Fool? I manage the Long Short Equity Fund at 1623 Capital, which is a subsidiary of The Motley Fool, started in 2019. Are there any disclaimers that you have to issue before you appear on this podcast? Typically, yes. Uh, I'll, I'll simply say that 1623 is a separate entity from The Motley Fool, and none of the investment decisions made at 1623 Capital involve anyone from The Motley Fool business itself. So we're just a separate regulated entity, as you know, David. Uh, all of Motley Fool Asset Management is. Thank you, Jeff. And you've been on this show before and issued a similar statement. And I've had a couple of your compatriots over the years joining. So I think our listener base is aware that these are separate companies and that you don't speak for anybody but yourself or your fun. And you and I don't discuss any investing really at the fool at all these days. We've done it a lot over the years, in part because of the important calling that you now have. But Jeff, it's a delight to have you back on this podcast where you're invited to share all that you'd like to. Thank you, David. It's, it's a delight to be here. And uh, yeah, I, I certainly miss working with you. We started way back in the 90s working together. And I bet we might get back there briefly. We'll see. That. <laughs> but do, do you have 10 sentences together? I do. So, uh, you know, I've heard the podcast. I know how this goes. Uh, I, I love the question. I, I love and I think it's good context for everybody. Uh, maybe a reminder for most that it was asked yesterday of me. <laughs> and and you're, it, you're at the beach, which many may not know. <laughs> it's spring break for my son. Yes, so we arrived to the beach, and uh, but it's a working beach holiday. Uh, so this is good. I, I love the the chance to reflect and think about it. But I didn't do so too much because you know, put your life in ten sentences. You could spend the next twenty four hours doing that. So I, I didn't want to do that. I like the I like the the short time window. And so let me let me just go to what I have. And I wrote down 10 clean sentences and uh, you run it through the Microsoft Word check and it said punctuation was perfect. Everything <laughs> was great. Great. Okay. Jeffrey Michael Fisher. I hope I don't sound too much like your mom, Jeff. Jeffrey Michael Fisher, tell your story. I was fortunate to be born to parents who cared for me. I was fortunate to travel as a child leading to interest in other places around the world. I was fortunate to spend much of my childhood outdoors before the internet really emerged in my 20s. I was fortunate to be educated and to enjoy learning, which makes me want to continue learning now. I'm fortunate to have close relationships with family and friends. I'm fortunate to have work that I enjoy and believe is important. I've lost uh, good friends at young ages to illnesses. And those losses don't dissipate much. They just seem brutally harsh, even 20 years later. I've been happiest with simple things, such as visiting friends and family, being outdoors, and just being active. Activity, including helping others, has really been the most fulfilling thing. I'm amazed that we're all on this living planet together, trying to make something good of it and hope that many of us can find happiness in the simpler things in life. A few takeaways from 30 some years of being an adult is that education is key 
to the world's future. And humanity needs to be incentivized to think and act with the long term in mind. My favorite word is abundance, not an abundance of things, but an abundance of opportunity that is ideally possible for everyone and every living thing on the planet. And I love, Jeff, that you concluded with the word abundance, which is a little ironic in that I only gave you 10 sentences to talk about your entire life. Well, let me just reflect. First of all, your first five or six sentences included the word fortunate. And you did start with, with your parents. And I'm wondering if you just say a little bit more about who your parents were, are. And Jeff, did that sense of gratitude come from them, that sense of being fortunate? I think so, David. And when, you, when you're asked to reflect on your life in 10 sentences, uh, it's interesting how much of the reflection, in my case anyway, goes all the way back to when you're really young. Like I think more than half of this was centered on pre-20s for me. And my parents, my dad was an engineer and we moved all around the country until we settled in the Chicago area when I was seven years old. And he helped design power plants around the country. This mm. is in the 70s. So I remember inflation being a big concern and so forth. Uh, my mother was a teacher. And so she taught at different schools throughout the country as we, as we moved around. And then I have three siblings as well two brothers and a sister. So a fairly large family. And we settled outside of Chicago. And yeah, I think the very first thing to mention was that my parents, you know, cared. And not all parents do, of course. And so that that helps you tremendously as you as you get started. And maybe that gratitude just feeds into everything else. Remind me where you are in the birth order, Jeff. I was second. Second. I am second. I have an older brother and a, a younger brother and and much younger sister. And you you talked about your education. Obviously, I'm sure a lot of people are curious how somebody who is as accomplished as you are as an investor um, really got started both with your own education, but then your investment education. So my own education was very traditional. Uh, Just went to university, got a four-year degree, took some graduate classes, but didn't continue beyond that. So I have an undergraduate degree with a business focus. Uh, But the learning, despite the finance classes I took, the learning really took place in real life. And it it happened to take place largely on on the internet, which emerged uh, really into popularity soon after I graduated college. So uh, that was an incredible experience that we'll talk about in a moment as, as well, I know. Yes, we will. We will certainly get there in the stock graph of your life. And it sometimes we we kind of jump into that by me asking follow-up questions just on, on your 10 sentences. But I'm going to keep doing that once or twice more and then go to your stock graph. Love it. You mentioned, Jeff, close relationships, something that um, are a big part of your life. I'm sure for a lot of fools listening to us right now, a lot of us would say that close relationships or a big part of our lives. Some people maintain many, many different relationships, more like huge networks of acquaintances. Others go deep with a few friends. Where are you in that spectrum? I, a small handful of friends and a fairly large extended family of nieces and nephews and so forth, as you would imagine with three siblings. And then uh, close friends mainly from college and from work. So a small network of friends. And something that I want to... Uh, and feel like I have more time to cultivate now and now and in the years going forward, because, you know, you spend so much of your, the middle of your life raising children, if you have them 
and on your career and so forth. And then you, you get to, I'm, I'm above 50 now, and you get to start to think about friends more at this point, if you're fortunate and, uh, and yeah, your own, how you want to spend your time. Of all my 50 plus year old friends, Jeff, you, you're the one who looks most like the early 40s. And I think in part it's because you take good care of yourself. You mentioned uh, enjoying walking outdoors, spent a childhood outdoors. I think being active, very important to you, uh, clearly suiting you well. Before we move on to the stock graph of your life, you did mention losing a friend or two or maybe three or four early. Would you like to add anything more about that, a particular person who comes to mind? Or is it there anything more, if I poke at that, that we can learn about you? Sure, definitely. And David, I tried to make each sentence, as you heard, very curt, kind of, but big overall topic picture. Yeah, yeah. Thinking that most everyone can relate to what I said. And I think part of the point or the hoped for point is that we're all pretty similar in, in our experiences, I think, especially when it comes to relationships and what matters to us and then losses as well. So I lost some friends. Uh, they were... The, in their early 40s, and then one recently in early 50s, but to they were surprising events because they were healthy one minute, and then mm. uh, I'm sure almost everyone can relate to. Unfortunately, cancer appears, and within months you can be gone. So it, it, one of them passed away almost 20 years ago, and you you still process it now, and, and you'll always be doing so, and it's always a loss that you can feel and sense. So. Yeah, there's something about losing people before it seems that you should that is, uh, in my experience, more just just really difficult in ways that are not quite the same when you lose someone who has lived a full life, at least, mm. a full natural life. So, yeah, it's it seems unnatural and, and discombobulating to lose somebody. And, of course all the opportunity that they're missing out by having a, a curtailed life is, is always with you. Well, the longer we live, the longer we will lose people. And the longer we live, often the more chance, unfortunately, we have to discover people younger than us losing their lives and leaving before we did. And it's something that we never want that of our own kids, but we don't really want any of that of our own friends or anybody at all. So, Jeff, I know we can all relate to that. And speaking of relating, I'm not sure everybody or every podcast asks <laughs> guests to express their life in a stock graph, but this one does, Jeff. So your life is a stock graph. It has some highs and lows, and I asked you to trace it out some. And maybe we'll spend, let's say, 15 minutes or so just talking through the shape of that curve, any highs or lows you wanted to speak to. This has all been done before, as you know. This is the fifth episode in the series. I can't believe I waited five full episodes before having my dear longtime compatriot Jeff Fisher on this, but it is also a sign, I think, of the deep bench we have at The Motley Fool because there are still any number of people that I haven't been able to invite into this series. And uh, anyway, I'm just delighted that you're with us now. So, Jeff, have you taken the time to trace out the stock graph of your life? I have, David, and I love this question because, of course, there's no visual I can provide. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, we all have to kind of listen and picture it in our own minds. And the good thing is, uh, and fortunate for me as well, is that the stock graph of my life generally has been upward and to the right, very similar to the stock market over our lifetimes and over history. So I think there's a great lesson in that. Uh, now, it's been up and to the right. Uh, ascending over time, 
with notable setbacks along the way, every typically every couple of years. And sometimes those setbacks feel monumental, but you get back on your feet and hopefully start climbing again, just as the stock market has done. So it's a great question because it hopefully it, uh, it speaks to the stock market as well. And in my case, it, it just happens to. I would say many of my past guests would also reflect up and to the right. And I think that's kind of what all of us want from our lives, a sense that we're growing. And even if we're not always hitting new 52-week highs with every passing year. I don't think that's really possible to do. I'd, lo- I'd love to meet that person one day if it is. But, uh, but I think it is a reminder that with that growth orientation, and Jeff, few people have more of a growth mindset, in my experience, of those I know than you do. So I think that for those with a growth mindset, it is natural to think of things that way. And it is natural also for the stock market to go up over long periods of time. So where would you like to start us? Somewhere down in the lower left. Yeah, lower left, it really kind of starts in the teenage years when I'm working a lot. I worked as a golf caddy and then worked from there on the maintenance crew of the at the golf course. And I was outside all the time and had a lot of independence. I'm driving tractors and giant fairway mowing machines and nearly lost a hand at one point. Nice. <laughs> but it was still uh, pickup trucks and front end loaders. All these things you're driving as a 16-year-old was pretty fun. So I loved working. I was saving money to buy my first car. And I also enjoyed school at the time and played soccer. Uh, So that was all great. The first kind of dip in my chart is when relationships started. (laughs) So did she break up with you or did you break up with her? There was no breakup for five years, but... But and I love that this is a hindsight hindsight chart because you're looking back and you realize that I was kind of happier just on my own before that <laughs> before the complexity of relationships got involved. Uh, of course, there are many great benefits to them, but yeah, I had a first girlfriend from 16 all the way until 21, mm. and uh, it was a great relationship. Uh, but you know, you're learning to become an adult, and you're also learning to think about others first, or at least as much as yourself. And that's complicated for someone who, like all of us, is at first just used to being only about ourselves. And so looking back, some of the rockiness in my stock chart, life chart, is over that period of time due to trying to figure out how relationships work. Well said. You know, I, I want to rewind it just a, a briefly because you said you were a golf caddy. I mean, I'm picturing this young whippersnapper, 16-year-old. Are you getting hired by people who are asking you your advice for which which club to select and whether to go left or right? Oh, sometimes. Sometimes. I, I became a regular for a, a gentleman. Uh, I can say part of his name. He was Mr. Tuck, T-U-C-H. And this is in Naperville, Illinois, at the Naperville nice. Country. I hope he's listening. Shout out to Mr. Tuck. I hope so. Uh, so I, I caddied for him every Sunday and, of course, got to know how he played and, and could sometimes suggest a club, but mainly I was just there silently you know, <laughs> doing my job. Well, given that a lot of your working career, and I'm not fast-forwarding, I'm staying in the youth, but a lot of your working career has involved giving advice to other people. Uh, in this case, not which club to select, but maybe which stock to select or which fund or what is the next right financial move. Can we see some of those early seeds of advice giving in your Sundays with Mr. Tuck? <laughs> 
it's possible because, you know, the weather is always different. The way the green breaks is always different. <laughs> when he really wanted me to caddy for him once I became a member of the grounds crew, because I was the one cutting the greens and placing the pin, and I knew the break and all that. Nice. And so, were, were you tipped well? Were you tipped or paid? How were you compensated, Jeff? As I recall, it was a kind of a flat rate and then a tip on top of it. And a nice. typical four-hour round of golf back then, you might get paid 12 to twelve to $20, something Yeah, like. okay. So, so you tick us up to somewhere around the age of 21. I don't know if you're headed there or not. This is yours to drive, not mine, but I can't not ask about the first stock that you bought and the day that you bought it. Were you going to include that story in the stock graph of your life? Because if you weren't, you need to. Possibly I was. It does tie into to later discussions too, so it's good to bring it up. I bought my first stocks in 1987 when I was 17, and it was right after Black Monday, the biggest fall in the market. And I had been following stocks for about four years, just out of habit, charting them on graph paper taped to my bedroom wall. And <laughs> I just found it interesting, and mainly the idea that you could make money. Uh, I don't know if I was aware of this at this early point, but make money towards your financial independence just from just from owning owning parts of companies. So Coca-Cola was one I tracked. Unfortunately, it wasn't what I bought. The first stocks I bought were Citicorp and Radice Corporation, which was a Florida real estate company that went bankrupt a few years later. <laughs> um, but I bought those at that age, right before college, and then really didn't follow them for the next five years or so as I went through school. But Jeff, it was the day after Black Monday? It was. October 1987, whatever day that was. 20- I mean, that that to me seems the stuff of legend right there. I mean, I love picturing the 17-year-old Jeff Fisher buying his first stocks the day after the market had its biggest crash of all time, one day. And I, I think part of it was because from tracking them for so long, I saw how they they performed over four years or so, and then suddenly prices were much lower because <laughs> the market, the S&P fell about 23, 24% that day. Um, incredible. And so a lot of stocks were much lower than that. So it just seemed like an opportunity to start to put a little bit of money in there. So that's how I, that's how I got started finally with, with real money. So the next decline in my life stock chart, life chart, would be soon after graduating. And I think that too is a pretty common occurrence. You're trying to decide or figure out what you can do next. And I graduated mm. during a recession. So I'll use that as, as an excuse. <laughs> it was tougher to find uh, work. I moved to Chicago with some friends, which was a lot of fun. And I started working at brokerage houses, uh, an experience that was pretty incredible in that it was very much like a movie and what you might expect at a a small sort of aggressive brokerage house that's cold calling people and trying to sell them stocks. And that's the role I was thrown into degree or no degree. It didn't matter. You're just, here's your list of hundred numbers to call today and get them to buy. Uh, it was a Telefonica de Argentina it was a recent mm. IPO. Uh, I didn't know much about it. Uh, they gave us a few pages to learn on it that same day. And so you learn about it and then you call people. Suffice to say, I'm proud of this. I didn't sell anyone a single share of stock. <laughs> I was horrible at the job because I'm not, I didn't want to make people buy something on the phone 
uh, in that sort of situation. So I didn't last long at, in that in that role, and my stock chart was definitely on the decline as I didn't know what I would do next. How long did you last in that role, Jeff? Uh, at one brokerage, it was a day, and there are many reasons for that. At others, it was <laughs> at others it was weeks. But there was one, which of course I won't name. I don't know if they're in business anymore, but just the things you would expect in a movie, a lot of language, a lot of, yeah, just the whole attitude. This just seems to go so contrary to the Jeff Fisher that I've known for 25 plus years. I can't imagine you really let, were your parents thinking, yeah, this is, this is the right avenue for Jeff based on what we know of our beloved second child. Yeah. He, this is going to be a home run for him. Or were they expressing skepticism? What was the milieu? Yeah. So in, you know how maybe in your early 20s, you don't talk to your parents that much about what you're doing. And so you just say, oh, it's going fine. It's, it's good. I think they knew I liked the stock market and investing. So they thought this, this might make sense for him. Did they know the stock market, Jeff? I mean, obviously, you took an interest at the age of 17. Was that inspired by an engineer dad and a teacher mom? Or was this just your own thing? It was inspired by school, a very brief class in early high school that taught about the stock market for a week or so. And that That's was great. great. Uh, my parents, my mother was uh, hesitant to invest in stocks, completely hesitant to the point that she wouldn't because her grandparents had told her so much about the Great Depression and how mm. people lost everything. And my father invested his retirement into the stock market. Uh, almost without her knowing because it made her too nervous. So, I was going to say that could be real friction. Yep. Yep. And he, yeah. So, but so it yeah. worked for him. It worked, right? It did. It did. It did. All right. So this job that we've heard that you tried at a couple of different firms that we all expect based on our knowledge of you probably isn't going to take puts you understandably at maybe a 52 week low that year. Where do you want to take us next along the stock graph of your life? Pretty, pretty close to a 52 week low. You're right. And so I, I stopped working at brokerages and I briefly became a temp because I needed something to, to pay my rent. And that put me into accounting positions at, at companies like Avon Products and OOCL, two great giant companies, OLCL Shipping. And that was good. That helped me professionally. So my stock chart increased a little bit, but it wasn't work I was passionate about at all. And so I was, again, drifting, drifting. And... Uh, what happened next was the internet, and that's a huge turning point. Yeah, the year was, I mean, I'm going to just say it was somewhere around 1991-2 for a lot of people who were maybe early adopters. Jeff, you and I first got to know each other, I think, probably over America Online, uh, and The Motley Fool uh, debuted on AOL on August 4th of 1994. I think the year leading up to that, we were answering a lot of questions on the online discussion boards there. Uh, so the stock chart started to climb at that point because I, I discovered AOL. I found the key thing is I found a community on The Motley Fool of investors. And over time, they were like-minded investors. Uh, I went into it with different thoughts on what investing was, and the people there had different thoughts. You and Tom leading the company had well-formed thoughts. And that's, I think, what a lot of us learned from, and it became kind of community mantra, this is how we invest and this is how we how we go forward. And that, finding a tribe, so to speak, was an enormous advantage to investing as opposed to feeling like you're all alone. Jeff, I'm picturing you with those stock graphs 
taped to your wall that you had personally hand-drawn, it sounds like. Were you a technical chartist in the early days? I, I, I'm not sure what I was in the early days. I, okay. I did think that the way to make money was to trade more often. It took me a while to learn that that was not the way for me to go. Uh, yeah, I, I, I wasn't a technical chartist, but I did ha still have those. I can still picture those green graph paper charts that I would pencil in every day <laughs> in fractions, Coca-Cola, $32 and one eighth, you know, one by one. Yeah. Well, one thing I remember from those early days, Jeff, is that we started a game talking about having found your tribe. You were playing a game with us. We started a game called Port Folly. Now, a tiny percentage of listeners know what I'm talking about, and that would be people who were with us in the earliest days at Keyword Fool on AOL, probably before we even had the fool.com web address, but before even people were talking about the web. We started a game called Portfolio. Now, I'm tempted, of course, to give the full rules and explain all about the game, but I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to say it was a stock-picking game, but instead of the average player picking their own, let's say, 10-stock portfolio, we featured six different, we called them houses, almost like Game of Thrones houses, factions, six different ones, and you would simply select in, join one of those, and that would be your score. And you could jump around from one house to another from month to month to see if you could amass the best return. And my recollection, Jeff, is that you were awfully good at that game. Well, I was fortunate to get a chance to manage one of the houses. The house. Exactly. Yes. And yeah, you and Tom and Todd Etter and other fools set this year-long game up. It's probably one of the earliest, if not the first, year-long portfolio management contests hosted online. And the followers, there are thousands of them, as I recall, and they would go from house to house and choose which one they wanted to, to be with. And, and Jeff, we had named you in charge of one of those portfolios because you'd already distinguished yourself in our forums. Yes, I think I was the House of Costard, I believe. Yeah, each of them was named after a Shakespearean fool, right? So that's right. Costard that's is one of them, uh, one of the lesser known of Shakespeare's fools. Well, I realize we could get totally lost there, and I don't think this is your intention to highlight this in the stock graph of your life, but I did just want to flag Port Folly, which was the name we gave to our early stock picking game on AOL. And it was fun, and it was a definite ascent for my chart because that year taught me a lot. So, David, then from there, discovering The Motley Fool and moving from Chicago to Alexandria, Virginia. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, a good, a big day for us at Fool HQ when Fisher showed up. That was so fun. And it started a whole long bull market in my life, which uh, hopefully many of us have experienced. Just good times for many years on end as you're, you're coming into your own kind of existence and what you want to do. So from mid-20s onward at The Motley Fool, and the company kept growing, so you kept making more friends at The Fool, and honing your investing style and, and craft and message, and it's just a steady upward trajectory there. I, I met my wife at The Motley Fool, we got married, uh, had a child, so this is all, all good, and this is through the 2000, 2001, 2002 yeah. air market as well. Uh, but if you keep perspective during those difficult times, like one thing I have found that helped, uh, even in a, in a bad market or a hard financial times, that's, that's a time to focus on more on your friends and family and other things that matter to you in life. Because you know those difficult time periods will pass. Yeah. 
Also, it's not that fun checking the market when everything's going down for a month, a quarter, or a whole 18 months, which is the average length of the bear market. Right, Jeff? Right. I said the same myself on this podcast many times. I don't check the market as much when it's down. It's not fun, and I do more productive things in life. Exactly. So you just have to look away and, and find uh, make a list of other, other things that matter to you and focus on those as well. And obviously, you'll keep up with your companies and their news and so forth. But it's just a reality that investing includes years at times, a couple of years at least, of, of negative returns or, or choppy returns and, and tough periods. Uh, so I wasn't really shaken by that until 08 and 09, when I imagine a lot of us were shaken. And that's when uh, my stock chart kind of went sideways, or at least it was stuck in a range. And that's really the key point I want to make is that I think what we're all living through is highs and lows concurrently at the same time. And so I was thinking, how do you chart that? Because the year my son was born was the same year one of my best friends died. And so how do you chart that? And maybe one of the happiest years of your life with family and friends is one of the worst for the stock market. So where do you, but it's yeah. a great reminder of the, the, just the highs and lows of life are frequently occurring at the same time. And so try to focus your energy and your attention on the, the good things and let the let the bad things you know run their course behind the scenes uh, you know you are pointing to a weakness of the exercise which is when you're forced to chart it it's very hard to express a high high and a low low at the same moment i mean some start <laughs> stock charts do have volume at the bottom so you could go you could show really huge volume down below and keep it fairly flat and maybe that would make sense from a charting standpoint but i do apologize for the two-dimensional nature of this exercise and i'm glad that you're illuminating that it's not always the easiest thing to to express. 2008-9, of course, just the systemic shocks that the whole system was feeling. There were questions, would our banking system work? Would, would capitalism continue uh, for the most part as it's worked, at least the conscious parts of it, right. into the next decade or two? And I'm happy to say clearly it did, Jeff. You know, I think some people listening are going to want you to talk about options, and I'm pretty sure you're going to ma mention that. I'm guessing it's one of your three key moments, which we'll get to in just a second. But could you really briefly just review a few of your responsibilities at The Fool over your 26 years? What have you been doing? Because it's hard to keep up with. Certainly. Early on, I worked on the Motley Fool portfolio, the Fool portfolio, with you and Tom. And it was a, a portfolio that bought companies, mainly growth companies, and also sold, sold short stocks as well. And yeah. <laughs> and I also managed the drip portfolio or the dividend reinvestment portfolio, which you uh, don't yes. hear as much about those anymore, but a dividend reinvestment plan that automatically free of charge typically invests your dividends and more stocks. Now you can do that through your broker pretty much automatically. So that's yeah. a great feature and definitely uh, something people should consider. Uh, and then I moved to Motley Fool Pro uh, the service that was uh, long and short equities as well, and also included options, the use of options, which are a way to ex express a viewpoint about a stock, bullish or bearish, and and pay a fraction of the cost to express that viewpoint uh, because the options have leverage in them. Uh, but yeah. you can do it without borrowing money. You just pay a few dollars for an option instead of, say, $50 for the stock. And uh, so that helped me grow as a, an investor as well. 
what a wide variety. And, and of course, 1623 Capital, the most recent and maybe most serious responsibility you've ever had at The Fool. So, Jeff, thank you for all of that. Your service to so many members, You, the number of postings you've put up on our discussion boards over the years, the connections you've made with a lot of the people hearing you right now, a lot of Motley Fool members. I don't want to sweep that under the carpet or fail to mention that because you have been out there uh, teaching, coaching, supporting so many people for many, many years online. You were there from the earliest days of AOL doing so. Well, Jeff, without trying to accelerate to, to a close with your stock graph, I am excited about the three key moments that have made you the investor you are today. Do you want to say any parting words about your graph? Certainly, David. I think in reflection about it and the fortunate graph that I've had, uh, but I think it's similar to many of us where there are many setbacks every few years. And overcoming those takes uh, trying to stay, keep a, a positive outlook and always do something positive to, to get you through a rough day or a rough time. And sometimes it is day by day. You just have to get through that day by doing one or two positive things. The other thing I reflected on over this long time frame is all the things in the world that can be upsetting, world news, uh, whether it's wars or all, all these things that, that happen to humanity and, and to yeah. people. And they're all important and they're all obviously this is the life we're living through. You can't ignore them. But when you chart your life, there are things that you have to overcome as well. And one of the ways of doing that is trying to help in what small ways you can. Volunteering locally, uh, going places to help on causes that you care about. It's amazing what a little bit of volunteer work, how much that can do for your your spirit and your soul and, and feeling better about things that are happening out there and, and keep you on a, on a positive outlook. I think it's easy to, to become negative uh, if you're reading the news all the time. Give a quick example before we move on, because you've mentioned volunteering a few times. You want to promote something near and dear to your heart. Who have you supported that you'd like to highlight? One thing, one thing we did with The Fool was uh, All Hands and Hearts, uh, which is a group that goes into disaster-stricken areas. We went to Puerto Rico. We've gone to Texas and others hit by hurricanes and you go for as long as you can uh, a week two, however long and you help rebuild homes you help clean up you help just something to help people get back on their feet and get back to their to their lives something like that is very effective and powerful other things I've done is in Costa Rica uh, help uh, turtle hatchlings get to the ocean. Something as simple as that. You just get to stand there and watch them run off to the ocean. Wow. Uh, Love it. From, from being poached and things that help the environment, help, help people. Uh, that's when you're asked to reflect back on 50, 53 years that, that those things stand out so much is, is a great indicator that, Hey, I need to keep doing those things and, and do more of them. What a wonderful point. And I'm glad you mentioned all hands and hearts because David Campbell, who is the uh, founder of half of that organization, having merged it with Petra Nemkova, I think I have her name pronounced right. She's Eastern European. Anyway, what a wonderful man and somebody that we've gotten to work with and has added value to The Motley Fool, some of his work uh, with our Motley Fool Foundation, some of his advice. We really appreciate it. So thank you for sharing that, Jeff. Well, let's move on now in closing to the three key moments that have made you the investor that you are today. Jeff, what's number one? Excellent. Number one, David, is discovery of the Motley Fool. And a little bit of context there. I 
it was early 1994, as you said earlier. I had been investing already for some years, but I really thought in my early 20s that the way to make money was to trade in and out more actively. And even then I was focused on software mostly and technology, but I would, I would buy something and look to, if I made a few dollars on it, sell it. And I remember one day I was driving my cherry red Ford Escort <laughs> to Best Buy to buy an IBM PS2 computer. Love maybe, it. Maybe it was a PS1. The funny part about that car too is that it was the second car I ever owned. And I remember the first car I bought with all that money from working at the golf course was a Shelby Charger, like a, a souped up kind of sporty car. And I remember telling my girlfriend at the time, you know, the good thing is the first car you ever buy is bound to be the worst car you ever own. You'll just get better from there. <laughs> sure how ignorant I was because flash forward two years and I'm driving this beat up Ford Escort. That Love it. Cherry <laughs> red. Very evocative. <laughs> just whatever I could afford. So I went to Best Buy, bought this computer, brought it home to my apartment, plugged it in, thinking I'd go to Word and start writing. And the AOL was on the desktop. The AOL ticker or monitor, you know, icon was on the desktop. Ah. So I logged into AOL. And the first thing I saw there was the, the original Fool Jester logo. And it mentioned the stock market. I clicked in and that was that. I, I don't think I ever visited anything else on AOL. I had found my community. And I pretty quickly learned from the writing on the Fool, not least from you and Tom, but the other contributors as well, that Bet. the long term was the way to go. And so I thankfully pretty quickly converted into, I just need to buy these things and, and keep them and add to them. And that was the key moment where I, a light bulb went off and I, I started to change how I invest. That one makes me smile. And I certainly can think of, um, apart from me and Tom, just so many fools, many of whom are still at The Motley Fool or maybe contracting with us today. But it really was a tribe. You had not just found an online destination or a couple of brothers. You'd found a large and growing group of people who felt the same way. And I'm really happy to say, Jeff, you, you and I have watched this over 26 years. It's a much larger group today than it was back then. And so we can look back on that and smile and think of contributions that we've made toward more understanding of, I think, valuing the long term and recognizing that's the one that counts. And that's really the best way to win this game is to let that happen and let and make sure our money is attached to it. Well, I appreciate key investor moment number one. Jeff, what is the second key moment for your development as an investor. So David, in reflecting on this, uh, I love that I think it parallels a lot of investors where first I was thinking short-term and I realized I had to be long-term. The second lesson was at first I was borrowing. I was using margin to buy stock. And what happened is, is quite a story that I'll condense, but it was 1996. Some fools listening will remember, of course, I Omega very well, the, yeah. the disk drive maker. And Many in the community were buying the stock. I bought the stock as well. And I started to buy it using margin in my account as the account grew. And that tremendously added to the value, uh, enough so as Jeff, the stock rose and rose. Yeah, I Omega, as you'll recall, was the number one performing stock on the NASDAQ in 1995. And then it was the number one performing stock on the NASDAQ in 1996. <laughs> you remember? Which is incredible. I think it rose 2,000% or something like that at one point. So I was doing well as a mid-20s guy who had this stock and a couple others. 
And I went to Europe uh, for the summer and bounced around Europe as I had done with some friends a few years earlier. I wanted to go back. I liked it so much. Uh, and as I traveled, I was still of the mindset that I should really save all the money I can. So at times, David, I slept outside, slept on sidewalks, slept on benches. Even though I had this stock account that was a good size for someone of that age. Yeah. But I was thinking, I, I don't want to touch that. I want to let it be. And then I'll never forget, I was in Gimmelwald, Switzerland. So very high elevation. You get there, you know, it's up a mountain. There's nothing there but one payphone I can still picture with a beautiful view of mountains and and waterfalls and helicopters flying over carrying cargo. It was incredibly beautiful there. And I called my broker, which at the time, national discount broker, which became TD Ameritrade, and punched in the key code to check out iOmega's share price. Because that's how we check stocks back then, Jeff, <laughs> especially if we're on the road, right? We <laughs> dialed a push button phone, in this case, a pay phone, and whatever the IOMG ticker symbol was translated to digits on the push button phone, that's how we found out what our stocks were priced at. Right, exactly. So I entered that in and I, I had to enter it a few times because I was uh -oh. so shocked. I'm like, what? What happened? Uh, uh -oh. you enter your account value. And you realize in the, in the short time that you've been traveling, your account value has been decimated. And why is that? It's because you used margin. And so I had a very strong moment of clarity there that I, I can't do this. This is not how I want to live. And I stopped using margin completely at that point. So at a young age and from one big event uh, on the road, I, I, it, it, that was the second key moment. And I just swore it off and I don't borrow money to buy stocks. Spectacular. What was key moment number three? Well, key moment number three, David, I, I thought of a couple, uh, but... I mean, you're skipping a lot. Like, no matter what you're about to say, and I don't know what you're about to say, I know you're skipping a lot. We didn't even get to talk about how we together visited Donald Trump's office, explaining why we had shorted his stock in 1998. Now, that is a story that we've told elsewhere. I've told it on this podcast before. You and I have shared that over the years. I don't think you're headed there right now, Jeff, but... I just want to make sure that listeners know that Jeff is editing massively to get down. Like too much is being thrown out. The baby with the bathwater here as you distill down to your final key investor moment number three. But go go right back and go do it, Jeff Fisher. All right. So short term to long term, key moment one, invest only your own money, key moment number two. Both realized in, in my early mid-20s, right now is the next key moment. And I really thought about it a lot. And I think it's true for all of us because I think investing is changing quite a bit. It, investing is so data driven. There's so much data to harvest and AI and computers are, are harvesting that data as we speak and making sense out of it. And I think there's no question that better data is going to lead to better investing outcomes. And it may help individuals like us to take some of the emotion that's part of the equation out uh, sometimes. So I, I, I think we can't ignore how rapidly the market's changing, how quickly it responds to news and events now in both directions, and how much computers are changing the nature of the market and the velocity of the market, really. And also, I think investors are smarter than they've ever been, and there are more of them than there's ever been. And now, David, we're looking at 
generations uh, after us that have grown up online and been investing online their whole lives and view it differently than we did. And so, yeah, I think right now is a really interesting moment for all of us and where investing is going to go next. I think it's going to change a lot in the course of the rest of my, my lifetime. Now, the fundamentals won't like owning good businesses at good prices and letting them grow and, and letting them surprise you, too, because a great business can grow so much more than you than you imagine over the years. That won't change. But you're we're all going to have to be mindful that I think the market is going to be more volatile with higher speed because computers drive so much of the trading now. Jeff, do you want to make a make a prediction based on those observations? You don't have to. Um, I could opine briefly about what I think that might mean, but I'm much more interested in what you think. Having observed that, do you have any expectations? I do believe, one, that technology is going to remain just key, uh, not to our lives just, but on the market. I think technology is going to keep leading. It's the biggest story of our age. That's not going away. It's it's the most exciting story right now in, in, in business anyway, technology and new forms of energy and so forth, anything that moves us forward like that. I think the market is going to continue to reward over the long term and maybe at a higher degree than it used to in that I think valuations will edge higher over time. The reason being, the more people realize the benefits of investing long-term, the less they're going to want to sell. I think we already see people have cotton to the idea of buying on dips and that helps the market rebound more quickly. It's it's really all about education, right, David? So if, if the market has averaged, say, a 15 price to earnings over history, but now twice as many people uh, want to be in the market and understand the benefits of the market, well, that multiple could very well go up because it's about supply and demand. So I think the market becomes more valuable per se over time, the more people who want to participate in it. Mm. And that's a hard thing to, to work into your models, so to speak, but you just, yep. have to, you, you just have to go on owning businesses you want to own and those with the most potential. Well, Jeff, thank you very much for all three of those key moments, um, many of which um, a lot of our listeners will have also learned at some of the same ages that you did because you were helping share out and teach what you were learning as you've gone through it, including what you just presented to us today. So again, thank you for the coaching and teaching and frameworks that you've given so many people. And I'm just glad to be able to show it off once again this week on this particular podcast. You know, as I think about a world where the data-driven analysis and data-driven investing and computers investing based on algorithms inside a second faster than I would even think, let alone put my money down, it feels to me as if, therefore, the importance in terms of what we're investing in takes on more meaning. Um, I realize that some people are always going to be trying to make the quick buck, and maybe computers will enable them to do that. They've tried real hard with high-frequency trading uh, <laughs> recently. But you know, I do feel as if we're shaping the world that our kids are going to live in, that we're going to live in a decade from now and 100 years from now, based on what we're investing in today. So I think maybe, despite what seems intimidating when we think about all those numbers being thrown around and computers acting quick, the humanity of what we're actually shaping together starts to matter a lot more and people being more intentional in terms of what companies they put in their portfolios, what venture investments they make and don't make seems to 
be more important as we go into the future. People can't see you doing this, Jeff. You're nodding your head. Thank you. It sounds like you're agreeing with me. Of course, we're on video with each other, but this is an audio podcast. But do you want to say anything in closing? Yeah, I love that thought. And the bottom line is a company takes time to grow and it can grow in so many different ways. And the only way that you can benefit alongside it as an investor is to to keep owning those shares as well. And the most rewarding thing about investing is to own something for so long that, that like it becomes half of your life you've owned it and you've grown up with it. And just like our life charts have ups and downs, a company will too, but you 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 stick with it as long as you believe in it. And so I think it's we all have to try to look ahead and think back to what life will look like in hindsight. And you're going to regret if you spend too much time worrying or too much time uh, on your troubles, because in the end, all you're going to want to think about is all the things you enjoyed and the things that went well. And so if that's what you're going to do in the end, you might as well start doing it now. Just focus on what you enjoy and on what's going well and uh, go forward day by day that way. Words to live by. You know, often this podcast is about investing, and yet it's often about business, and in this case, life. And I think you've just spoken to all three of those very well. Well, Jeff Fisher, thank you for telling your story. Thank you, David. All right. Well, again, thank you to Jeff Fisher for his time this week, and thank you in advance to my next guest, Kirsten Guerra. Kirsten, a delight to have you. Is this your Motley Fool Rule Breaker Investing podcast debut? It is. This is my first time here. And I'm delighted. Now, I know you're on Motley Fool Money, and you, in your almost four years at The Fool, you've done a number of different things, but increasingly focused these days as an investment analyst. We're asking for you to lend your expertise and your voice. And I characterized you earlier, Kirsten, as transitioning from a job working oil fields as a geophysicist to, of course, now your career as an investment analyst. Is, is that accurate? Is that the right picture that I painted? Yeah, I think that's very accurate. Um, the one word in there, oil field, is one I, I won't correct you on because I often use it myself. Uh, but usually when I say that, people imagine me on, you know, working hard labor on an oil rig yeah. in the true oil field. That is not quite a picture <laughs> of reality. I, I did work remotely. Data was streamed to me in an office. But overall, generally a pretty accurate picture. Yeah. Excellent. Well, like many a fool, including several that have been on this episodic series before you, you came outside of the world of investing into The Motley Fool. And I think a lot are interested. A lot of us are always interested by people who make daring, if you will, career transitions. I'm not going to say, I don't know how much risk you took or not to do that, Kirsten. I'm just glad you found us and we found you. And I'm looking forward to your 10 sentences. Did you have an opportunity to put those together? I didn't. Is that a problem? No, I did. I did. <laughs> Good. You mean what I said on Slack, you did actually read and you did that. Thank you. Yes. It'll make a huge difference here since the first of our three building blocks is the story of your life in 10 sentences. So I say, without further ado, Kirsten, Nicole, Kara, tell your story. Thanks, David. So, um, Oh, do these words count? Here I go. I'm gonna I'm gonna start. I'm gonna start on my sentences now. Okay. One, I was born in Texas and I carry all the required pride that comes with that. But really I was raised all over the South. Semicolon. My mom's career progression meant moving around a lot as a kid. Uh, I was a pretty introverted kid, which 
to no surprise, has translated into being a fairly introverted adult, certainly one that is not the most comfortable recording podcasts, for example. (laughs) Uh, I got my degrees in geology at Georgia State University in Atlanta, and then Auburn University in Auburn, Alabama. I spun that into a six-year geophysics career in the oil industry, where I worked in micro-seismic geophysics. And my time in the oil field was a pretty perfect overlap with the slide from the 2013 peak oil to 2019 trough and plateau. So I quickly then slowly watched morale kind of degrade for years and years before ultimately leaving a little burnt out by the whole industry. One thing that has always been foundational to all of my interests is data, spreadsheets, and solving puzzles. For example, I love reading, so naturally I have a whole Airtable, kind of like a spreadsheet database, to track my TBR, reading challenges, and details of every book I've ever read. So when leaving oil and gas, that's the underlying thing I looked for. More data to analyze in spreadsheets, more puzzles to solve, and that's how I ended up here at The Motley Fool with an eye on investing. Um bonus sentence. I know I sound like a total nerd. Just wanted to (laughs) acknowledge that. (laughs) Sentence nine. I live in Virginia now for this job, the farthest north I've ever lived. And one thing it's absolutely solidified about myself is that I do not handle cold well. And finally, I guess I'll just summarize that the life I've lived up until now has shaped me to be generally optimistic, curious, and quick to reach for humor in all situations. And it's a fantastic reminder as to why you fit in so well at The Motley Fool in your almost four years with us. And I realize that's been characterized by a huge change, not just in the price of oil from 2013 to 19, but in how society works and in some ways the future of work. Kirsten, one thing I will say is I go into the office sometimes to do this podcast. I didn't at all for a couple of years, but I in recent months I have, and I'm always, I feel like I'm always seeing you in our office and I appreciate that about you. Um, do you enjoy an office environment? A lot of our employees seem to say, nah, I'm good working from home. All good. I do. It's looking ahead. It's part of my, it's part of my story. In fact, Mm. that I, I appreciate an office so much that, you know, the last couple of years have been challenging, but yes, since we reopened, I've been here nearly every single day they will allow me. And, uh, I just love, dropping in and knowing that people will be around. That's fantastic. What was your mom's career that was taking you from one place to another? She worked in the uniform industry. um, And so different companies, and they all have been acquired since then, so they don't exist anymore anyway, but generally in that industry. And she worked in sales um, and we moved a lot because she was climbing the ladder. So she was all the way up into like national sales, sales rep. So yeah. Uh, Siblings? I do. I have a younger sister. Um, I, I almost said her name. Maybe I won't. I don't know if she wants to be called out on a podcast or not. I mean, um, I called your middle name out earlier. That's enough, probably. Okay. Yes. Yeah. I won't. I won't full name her for sure. Um, but yes, I do have her. She's a um, a nurse, so totally different path than either of the paths I've chosen. Where did your love of data spreadsheets? You also used a lovely phrase. A lot of us enjoy solving puzzles. Where did that come from? Where did it come from? Yeah. Were you always that way? I mean, did oh. you were you born with an Excel spreadsheet on your, I'm not sure what, uh, Game Boy? 
Yeah, something like that. I um I don't know how to say how to answer where it came from. Um, it has always been there. Like okay. I said, it's been underlying just things I've been interested in my whole life. But I don't think you know my parents aren't anything like that. I don't know that my sister even is really like that. So I don't know where it originated. I'm just sort of a, a weirdo data nerd in the family. I've always figured we're about like 50% DNA driven and 50% behavioral driven. It just feels about right. Some of it is born and some of it is experienced. It sounds like you got a different gene than some others in your family. Maybe maybe there's a grandparent that you're taking after, but we don't need to go there right now because where I really want to go next is what exactly were you doing? What is micro seismic um, geology and functionally, what what were you performing for your employer? Yes. So um, microseismic geophysics, the role I was in, deals with, it's related to fracking, hydrofracking, which people are probably more familiar with, but yep. just in case they're not, you know, essentially pumping a mixture, largely water, uh, but definitely other things in there, uh, into a well and trying to stimulate that well and be able to produce that well better. So that is the whole fracking process that happens in the field. What my role was, was to have all that that data streamed um, to me in an office, like I said. And the, the data that I mentioned that is streaming is uh, what we would do is we would place geophones in a nearby well. And so geophones are placed to essentially listen to the rock react to the, you know, the, the stimulation that's happening in the other well, in the target mm. well. So the end product of that is essentially that we can monitor and map out exactly where micro fractures are happening, right? And that's where micro seismic comes from. It is a shared field with what people know as seismic earthquakes, but it is a very, very, very magnitude, you know, smaller level. And uh, that's what we're listening to and mapping it so that oil operators can better understand how their production is going. Beautifully explained. Thank you. I'd always wondered. I clearly had never really had this conversation with you, but that's pretty cool. Is it Was it kind of the same from one day to the next, or was there growth orientation or discovery? What was it like over the course of six years or so? An excellent question, and another part of my stock story. <laughs> well, let's um, park it then, because we're okay. going to get there. Let's just park that. But before we go on to the stock graph of your life, which is where we're headed right now, I do want to ask what you're reading right now as a fellow reader, somebody who... Uh, enjoys perusing lots of different titles. In my case, the Readwise app has been this miraculous discovery. And I see you nodding your head. Do you tend to ebook it yourself and or do you use Readwise to track your highlights? I don't. I'm a very, uh, I'm not a digital reader at uh -huh. all. I love a, a good uh, paper book, you know, and I use the library for a lot of stuff. Um, very old school. That's wonderful. You know, I do think the sale of ebooks started to um, slow down and maybe even has, has crested in the past. I think most fellow humans are more like you, preferring paper to, uh, to the ebook uh, trend. It seemed like such a big deal for a while. But anyway, I really appreciate that. You obviously have a very inquisitive mind, Kirsten, and we're all going to benefit from that as we hear a little bit about the stock graph of your life. Now, this is an exercise many people have never done. You're modeling it for us. Jeff did his own. We all have different takes on how we want to identify highs and lows, and what you want to speak to, your choice to share whatever you would like. Where are you going to start us? I'll start you at um, my lowest low in early childhood, um, which was when my best friend told me that I should stop singing 
because my voice <laughs> did not sound very good. And I'm obviously partly joking, but also to some degree not because uh, if I did have a good voice, I can tell you that I, I probably wouldn't be on this podcast right now. I would probably <laughs> be singing. And uh, that would be the dream if I had the skill set for it. But I learned early that I do not. How old were you when you had that news dropped on you? I think it was like eight or nine. Okay. And I'm picturing you in Texas, although yeah. I recognize you also went to school in Georgia and Alabama. In fact, I don't really hear a Southern accent from you, Kirsten. I was I would have expected maybe from a Texas girl who went to college in Atlanta, Georgia, and then grad school in Auburn, Alabama, that you'd have a lovely Southern twang. I'm not hearing it. You're just straight up. You sound straight up to me. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe it just all canceled each other out. And it, it I don't know. I, I also don't hear an accent on myself, but who knows? Depending on where I am, people tell me differently. All right. So from age eight or nine, you had a low moment. Where do we go next? Sure. So realistically, the the best way to paint my childhood, I think, is just sort of a steady climb. You know, I um, I really enjoyed school. I loved the structure of school. I did well in that environment. And so that really carried on, you know, through um, through early education into university and then even into grad school to a degree, even though grad school kind of changes things a little bit because it switches from not being so much just, you know, here's the textbook, we've condensed the knowledge for you, learn it, repeat it back. It starts to become, okay, you're on the leading edge. You do the research, you tell us. Wow. You know, I never got there. That sounds exciting. It's, it's intimidating, but exciting. It, it's for sure. It's both. Um, but yeah, so the, the nature of it changed a bit there toward the end. But just in general, I loved school. And so very steady climb, continuing to learn throughout my life. I never did have a GPA of 4.0. I, uh, but, but these days, in fact, I, I've seen some great inflation, Kirsten, there. Sometimes people have GPAs of 5.0. I'm not, did, did you, what was your highest GPA? I think, oh my gosh, it's been a while. It's on my resume, technically. I think it was a 4.3. <laughs> it rounds above four. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. All extra credit, no doubt. Where are we headed next on the stock graph of your life? I'm having fun. Yeah. So from there, like I said, just a very steady climb. But um, toward the end of that, I was trying to, of course, make that next jump and actually transition into a career and look for a job. And uh, I was at Auburn at the time, like I mentioned, and I was specifically looking for an oil job, but I was really coming from what is not traditionally an oil school. So not a lot of recruiters looking at Auburn. And so I was having a harder time of it. Um, and so I actually almost went the route of getting a PhD in geology. Mm. Um, I actually applied and was accepted, but I did end up turning it down. Um, Why? Well, I got a job offer. Nice. And so I just, I went that route, but honestly, I'm very glad that I did as well. And that I didn't just go with the, the route that happened to be open in that moment, because we all know at this point that after six years in that field, I did, I did transition out of it. And so I, you know, might have regretted really further pigeonholing myself into an even narrower um, slice I of, see. of that industry. Academia. As yes, it were. exactly. So I'm glad it happened the way it did, but sort of a plateau for a time there. So I'm still picturing kind of lower left to upper right pretty consistently because through your childhood years and your success in schooling and then 
I think, a decision you were happy with that makes a lot of sense to me in retrospect, which is that you went into industry instead of sticking with, I don't know, I'm imagining another six years toward a PhD. I'm making that up. That's always what it sounds like to me, but maybe I'm thinking of med school. But anyway, so Kirsten, you had that first job. I'm just curious, did you stay with the same company all the way through and or what was the workplace culture like? It has to have been interesting. I did stay with the same company the whole way through. Um, so where I started my first job, I, I progressed. Um, and even my position didn't change that entire mm-hmm. time, which is part of that next part of the story where I kind of got burnt out with it. Um, but you asked about culture and really all of that is informed by the same thing, which I mentioned was sort of the larger external environment influence of the fact that the oil market around us was falling apart. Naturally, it went from an environment where everyone was very happy at work mm. to, uh, you know, a lot of struggle. We saw a, a ton of layoffs and it was, um, you know, I mentioned at one point that it, I watched it sort of degrade quickly and then slowly because there was sort of like a quick adjustment uh-huh. in that time. Um, and then, yeah, then just sort of a slow, I don't know, a slow degradation over time. And that's that's got to be hard, obviously, on a workplace culture, but just thinking how tied a business like that would be to the oil price and then thinking of it losing about two-thirds of its value or so at different points over those years. It's made some recovery since the stock market has itself been tough for a lot of us. And in a lot of ways, you transition from a business pegged to the oil price to a business pegged to the stock market. So I assume you're kind of comfortable with that, but we sometimes don't have our hands on the wheel of the industries that we're working within. What did you learn by years five and six? Were you growing increasingly disconsolate? Uh, Were all your friends laid off? Was there some kind of a recovery? Yeah, I did have a lot of friends laid off and that was hard. The biggest challenge really for me, I think was because, you know, I started in a company that early on, and I think this was true at the time when things were were good, that there was a ton of opportunity and you could transition roles and try new things. And because my overlap in my time there was was not, not at the best time, I mm. just never got that opportunity. So I was always in the same role. And um, it was an exciting role to start with because it was something completely new to me. I, as I mentioned with the school thing, I love continuous learning. And so I just got kind of drained by that. Plus, I mean, another big part of oil field culture, again, I didn't work in the oil field, but I worked (laughs) tangentially and I worked the same schedule as them, is a very erratic schedule. There's 12-hour shifts. Um, I worked night shifts, but some day shifts. So it's like very back and forth. It's over the weekends. It's very hard generally to know ahead of time when you're going to be working which shifts. So it's, it's very taxing, you know, on the the mind, body, and soul, um, in addition to everything else that was going on. Well, nudging us along the stock graph of your life and beginning to set up soon for the three key moments making you the investor you are today, I, I one of my early recollections as I got to meet you in 2019 is that you were an avid listener of Motley Fool Podcasts. I don't know if that was a chapter here, but I felt I should mention it because whenever I think of you, I think of you coming up to me saying, hey, I've listened to your podcast. And um, uh, In the past, The Motley Fool has had a number of podcasts. These days, it's mostly Motley Fool Money and Rule Breaker Investing, although part of the reason for that is that we have Motley Fool Live, uh, the TV channel for our members that we do these days on our website. But Kirsten, 
were you going to include your love of podcasts or listening or how did you first meet the fool? Yeah, I, um, well, a lot of it pertained to the job I had. Like I said, it was, it was very repetitive. I don't mean to say that micro seismic geophysics is easy. That's not the impression <laughs> I want to give. But it doesn't once, sound it. <laughs> right. But once you do it for a while, it does become a little bit repetitive. You know the basics. And so that's how I got into podcasts was I was working those 12 hour shifts, especially mm -hmm. at night. And um, I just wanted to listen to something and learn something while I was doing the more repetitive parts of my job. And so, yeah, I, I got into Motley Fool podcasts and that does transition us into the next sort of part of the stock graph, which is moving on up from that slide. Um, I, you know, was listening to the podcast and I one day heard Chris Hill mentioned, hey, check us out. We were hiring careers.fool.com or whatever it was. And uh, I, you know, it's a totally different industry, as we all know. I, it was not something I had ever considered, but I thought, okay. Why not? And you you went to careers.fool.com or jobs.fool.com. We we use both, and and you applied. I did. Yeah, I applied. Uh, I applied to the editorial uh, side of the the business, which is where I started. Did that feel like a a risk? Did that feel like a a big moment? Was everything slowing down for you in the movie? Is this in slow mo or what was it like? It was a very difficult decision, naturally, right? I had, I was two degrees deep into a specific field, six uh, six years into that career, and I, as I said, felt totally burnt out on the industry. So, yeah, it was it was a big question: do I do I work through the burnout and stay in the same industry because it seems like it would be a waste not to, or do I go for something totally new? Um, I felt like I could, I had the interest in in this and investing i felt like i could do that it just it would the biggest question was is it a waste to let it all go and i think that i talked myself into it by sort of reminding myself that if i wanted to one thing that this new job at the fool could teach me is a lot more about business and management and so i thought if i really make this leap so i basically came up with a contingency plan if i really make this leap and I don't like it or I think it was a mistake, well, I can take the business learnings and get back into oil and just have that added, uh, you know, knowledge going forward. And um, I really just needed to have that logic in the back of my head yeah. to say that it would be okay. But ultimately, I also knew that I was just done. I needed to be able to talk myself into it. Um, but I knew that that this was the way to go. And I, so I haven't regretted it for a second. Our good fortune, and I think having a plan B always makes sense. That feels emotionally healthy to me for all of us as we go through uh, the winding paths that we go over as we lead our lives. Kirsten, earlier you mentioned that going to an office is important to you. And obviously, we had a couple of years there where you couldn't go to our office. We shut it down, and we weren't the only ones that felt like much of society did. And in various ways, we're kind of reopening or not all of our businesses. A lot of people say Washington, D.C., downtown, they feel this way about their own cities in many cases, feels not as active as it was pre-pandemic, even though things are kind of opening back up. So why is an office important to you? It's funny because I would say in my previous role that I didn't love, um, again, back in the oil field or in the oil industry, but in an office, <laughs> I... 
I, in that case, I didn't feel that I needed an office. In fact, at that point, I would have given anything because it was these remote 12-hour night shifts. I would have given anything to be allowed to work from the comfort of my home. Wow. But in this particular role, you know, I think part of the reason I came to The Fool was that I love the culture and I love that, uh, you know, so many people here have been hired specifically because they're just so much fun to be around and they're such contributors to culture. And I did have eight months of that before, you know, before March 2020, when we kind of shut things down. And that's just a huge, I miss that, right? Um, So, you know, I, I, like many people, have many things about working from home that I do appreciate. But, um, you know, I just have a cat at home and he's not nearly (laughs) as entertaining as uh, my coworkers are. And so I, I mean, I'm sure that's just it, right? I think coworkers are a huge part of it. And at The Fool, so many of my coworkers, I would even just call friends. And so it's kind of an office is really a place to just drop in and hang out with your friends, which I'm saying that's the story for me. It's maybe not for everyone. And I appreciate for them that they maybe don't have to anymore. Well, I, you're making me, on the one hand, a little nostalgic because the approximately 26 years before your first eight months in the office, I felt exactly the same way. And certainly having... Uh, I think just a delightful, growth-oriented, unpredictable in a good way, fun office culture is one of the pleasures of a work life. Um, I, I will say that it's not pure nostalgia because I I do believe that many people still enjoy that today, and I do think in various ways that the fool, even though many are working remotely these days, I think it's likely if I were betting. I think it's likely that there's a little bit more gravity back toward a commonly shared space, even if it doesn't look exactly like whatever it looked like in 2018 or 2008 for many different businesses. But it's still ours to figure out. And indeed, I would say we're all shaping that. So through our habits and through our expressions. So I really appreciate what you just shared, Kirsten. Well, shall we wrap the stock graph of your life up right there? Is there anything you'd like to say in summation? I guess I will just wrap it up with the, you know, the current high that I'm on, which is that I I made that transition from editorial where I started at The Fool and I joined the investing team um, late last year. And so that is whether by bias of whether recency bias or um, truly a high, I think it's truly a high. But um, yeah, that's that's been a big win for me. And I'm so excited to, as I've said before, continuously learn. This is the ultimate field to always be learning in. Wow. So well put. And I'm getting excited now to learn the three key moments that have made you the investor that you are. And I realize in some ways you may feel like, hey, uh, you just became an investment analyst at the end of last year. At the same time, I think The Motley Fool has always made it clear that we're all investors. In fact, how we spend our money was an investment, whether we bought a stick of bubble gum or put it toward our 401k. So I think there's a narrative that says that you were always investing and learning to be an investor, but obviously with more rapid progress more recently. And I think a lot of us are interested in somebody who would make a career transition like you did toward the subject that we love so much. Kirsten Garrow, what is investor shaping moment number one for you? So the first one is less of a moment, maybe more of a a time frame. And that was just growing up uh, with sort of absorbing my mom's love of business, which you asked me a bit about earlier. She worked in the uniform industry, like I said. And so the way I experienced that as a kid was, you know, I would just hear from her about if she was trying to, to make sales to a company, she would kind of research their culture. And I would hear all about that. And after that, she later 
um, opened a pet store and I worked at that pet store. And so I got to see how a small business is run and, and all of the, the impact of that. So I think the reason that that's so important to me is because my first introduction to investing was from the side of caring about business in an alternate universe. It's possible I never had that. And my first introduction to investing would actually be something more along the lines of trading. You know, this is true for many people that the first thing you see that seems interesting is like, oh, let me look at these candlesticks and these lines and what does it all mean? And Especially for somebody who loves spreadsheets, right? Especially for somebody who's probably awesome with data, it would all seem like maybe a math exercise. Exactly. It would be very appealing, I think. But I'm, of course, very grateful that instead of that alternate universe, we live in this one. And I I did get to absorb all of that business-specific interest. Um, So I'm, I'm coming at it from the right direction, I think. I love that, which whets my appetite for key investor shaping moment number two for you? Moment number two for me came, I guess, many years later. It was when I was listening to or how I got into listening all of the Fools podcasts. And that is that first I was uh, frequently listening to fantasy football podcasts. I um, don't ask me anything currently about fantasy football, please. I don't play anymore, but I was (laughs) playing at the time. And when I was, I became obsessive over it. Naturally, it's a very data intensive field, right? There were stats to know every week. I was listening to multiple podcasts per day on fantasy football, Hilarious. knowing where all the where everyone was, what the chances were of injury based on weather, just ridiculous things. Were you keeping some of the knowledge in spreadsheets? Like were you expressing this digitally in some way in your life beyond just listening to podcasts or did you just have it in your head? It was all in my head at that point. It almost didn't make sense to have spreadsheets because I just had to make quick decisions. <laughs> but yeah, it was, it was something naturally very, very appealing to me. But I had this moment at the end of uh, you know, my first season, which I won, by the way, of course. I was going to say, you're one of those people who's <laughs> keeping up to date on everything. Plus, you're intellectually curious. You like solving puzzles. Probably you're winning your league, I'm guessing. Yeah, I, I mean, it's it's very fair to say everyone else in the league just did not care as much as me. But whatever it takes, I won. And uh, <laughs> But what that resulted in is I found myself very sad at the end of the season because I was like, what can I obsess over now? All of my data is gone. And that is when I thought, okay, let me look into investing. I don't know what it was necessarily that sparked that, but I was like, okay, let me see if I can find just as many podcasts to to fill my mind and my time um, with something else that I can obsess over. And ideally something that could even make me money, mm. um, more money than my payout in the, in the fantasy football league. And so that uh, really is what me, got me interested and obsessed. And it continues to this day to shape how I invest because I frame my entire portfolio as if it is a fantasy football team, because that helps me just sort of with portfolio management. And you know, I love this. I didn't know this was coming, but part of my own story, Kirsten, which we may have talked about or not, is that I had a similar love in this case of baseball. And so it was the age of Moneyball, Bill James, Sabermetrics, for those who know the term. And I invested so much of my youthful energy toward that and learning that. And then I decided, you know, after spending many hours trying to get good at that, playing dice baseball games, tracking everything, I think I did have spreadsheets out there. I'm not really going to make much of a dent on the baseball world. And not only that, but yeah, it's only played half the year. There's six more months. And so 
I experienced a very similar transition where I was like, you know what? What could I actually spend more time on that will last every day, all year long, and could make money over the course of time? And so I feel as if you and I are a yin and yang around the same kind of love of finding something that would be more rewarding. Yeah, that's exactly right. And it has worked out for me so far. I mean, this year in particular has been, or this past year has been a little more tough, but um, just like a keeper league in fantasy, I mean, we, we just keep going. Well said. And, you know, I now that the first quarter of 2023 is in the books, it, it was a pretty spectacular quarter for investors. I realize a lot of people are still looking at the highs they had in 2021 saying, will we ever get back there? And by the way, the answer is Yes, we will get back. They're not saying when, but that's not even, I don't think, the right question to ask. I think a good question to ask is, where will we go from here? And this year has started very strong. I think it's replacing some of the uh, bearishness and bad numbers from the previous 18 months. We'll see. But I am happy to note the NASDAQ up 16.8% for the first quarter of 2023, which, by the way, ain't too shabby for any quarter, for any index. But enough about that. Let's move on to key investor moment number three. This one's pretty recent for me. This one's going to be a book that I read within the past year, and that is Narrative and Numbers by Aswath Damodaran. Have you read it, David, by chance? I have not. Now, Aswath has come to Full HQ. He's got a lot of fans among the Full community, of course. Um, he has a very valuation-centric approach to the markets, which isn't as much my own orientation or interest. Uh, he is deeply respected. He's one of those academics who's broken out of academia and, and so generously and openly shares his work with the world at large. I think he's a wonderful human being. I've not read Narrative and Numbers. It is valuation centric, but I think you would agree with everything in this book because it is very much like you said, it's it's the idea that to value a company, which in my opinion is one of the hardest things, and that might not just be my opinion, that probably stretches <laughs> to others, but it's been one of the hardest things to learn because you can learn the story of a business alone, just the narrative, mm -hmm. and think that that's, it, you know, it's on a great path. But if you don't put numbers to that, then it's very hard to understand exactly how others are pricing that stock. And then on the other side of that, if you are purely numbers focused and you, you know, pull up a DCF, a discounted cash flow, and you put in some numbers about I think it can grow revenues and margins at this rate, and you end up with a final number, you know, a final valuation on the stock, that's all well and good too. But if you don't have a narrative understanding of exactly why you think that company can raise revenue at that rate or expand its margins, then you you don't have a good understanding of the valuation and how mm. you got there. And I think that's important to, in terms of writing your thesis so that you can truly hold on to a company for the long term, you need to really know why you believe it is worth buying today um, and, and, and into the future. I am dangerously out of my element here as I make the next statement. But one of the things that I I think I recall. I'm always going, if, if it's science, it's going back to my undergrad, and that's many years ago, and science has learned more and changed. But I think that we know about particles that often, like, let's take, I don't know, a, a photon. We can know its direction, but we can't know for sure its position. Or we can know its position, but we can't know for sure its direction. I think the Heisenberg uncertainty principle is somehow tied into all of this, but this feels a little bit like what you're saying. And I know I'm speaking to a physicist in some ways, but it's hard 
for a lot of people, I think, just as it's hard to know both where a subatomic particle might be headed and where it is at the same time, for a lot of people, Kirsten, straining this analogy, it could be hard to hold both narrative and numbers in mind. It sounds as if that's that's what's helped shape you here with key moment number three is the recognition of the integration of those things from Demodoran. Yeah, definitely. I'm going to be honest. I didn't study. I studied geology, not geophysics or okay, physics. Okay. So I don't actually know a lot of what you just said. I'm going to, it sounded good and I, I believe it, but um, yes, you know, I think it's an, it's an apt metaphor either way. Um, yeah. It's all in the narrative and the numbers. Well, thank you for that. Now I'll pull myself back to a place of confidence where I can step on firm terrain and say, Kirsten, thank you very much for sharing your growth and journey. Part of telling their stories is just a, it's a pleasure to hear a fellow human being reflect on their life, uh, especially those of us who move toward becoming investors. Uh, and whether it was serendipitous or through intention or something of both, you have generously shared where you've been and where you are today. I'm just curious. Uh, for a lot of us who are still getting to know you as an investor at The Motley Fool, where are you focused with your efforts today? What service could I subscribe to or articles could I read that I would find your stuff? Yeah, I'm contributing these days to Stock Advisor, which is uh, you know a great fun place to be because there are... I was going to say no rules. That might not be exactly correct, but there's no specific industry or anything that we focus on. So, you know, all Love kinds it. of companies are out there. But then I also spend uh, my time as well focused more on cloud in um, different cloud services, interconnected opportunities with our friend Tim Byers, which has been a great time. Um, so that's kind of a nice uh, way to sort of narrow in on on at least one industry and and go a little bit deeper and learn more there. That's great. I'm shocked that you didn't say oil or energy, oil field services. I mean, we don't have you leaning in on that? No, it's funny. People always ask me that, right? Like, oh, well, you're an investor now and you were in oil. So what are your thoughts on <laughs> X company? The truth is, like I said, I was burnt out by that industry and I mean it through and through. Wow. I don't own any oil companies in my portfolio. And I, I truly, I haven't really kept up with it in years. I think I'm learning to be over it and I'm coming back around, I will be learning more about energy because it it plays a, lo a larger underlying role in so many other industries. But I don't think I'll ever get fully back into oil and gas. Well, I like where you are. Obviously, I'm a huge Stock Advisor fan. I'm delighted to know that Kirsten Guerra is spending a portion of her time helping out members of Stock Advisor, The Motley Fool's largest service. So that's exciting for me. Uh, you may have seen that OPEC Plus said, hey, we're cutting production. And just this week, it seemed like the oil stocks were all up on Monday, but it sounds like not with your dollars tied to them. And that was just one day and one announcement. And there's only so much we can all keep up with in this world. So I think having your focus and the tendency is to think, oh, yeah, I should focus on whatever my background's been about. But really, and I know I'm speaking to somebody so intellectually curious, Kirsten, our focus is really I think where our interest is, I think that's where we should be focusing. It's clear to me you have found that, and it is our great benefit. Kirsten Guerra, thank you so much for telling your story on this week's podcast. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on and um, allowing me to chat with you about you know how I got here. I think I want to reiterate one thing at close. If you're an investor, and the truth is, as we just talked about with Kirsten, I think we are all investors, whether we know ourselves by that name or not. So I should say that if you've switched on to that and you recognize that you are 
and investor. Maybe you bought your first stock the day after Black Monday, 1987. Maybe you came to the markets because you acquired a taste or love of business from a successful entrepreneur who happened to be your mom. You will realize that your story will inevitably be shaped by the investing that you do. The stock stories and our stories become intertwined, weave their way through our lives. And here's one more key insight. Boy, if it isn't also true that the more investing you do and the more care you take with it, and the better you do over time, that story of your own making has a better and better chance of being a story with more and more possibilities. Oh, the places you'll go. And one, I hope, with a very happy ending. So again, thank you to Jeff Fisher and to Kirsten Guerra. And when you're gone, who remembers your name? Who keeps your flame? Who tells your story? As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Learn more about Rule Breaker Investing at rbi.fool.com.